Chapter Nineteen of Clotel. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Clotel by William Wells Brown. Chapter Nineteen: Escape of Clotel. Quote, the fetters galled my weary soul, a soul that seemed but thrown away. I spurned the tyrant's base control. Resolved at least the man to play. Unquote. No country has produced so much heroism in so short a time, connected with escapes from peril and oppression, as has occurred in the United States among fugitive slaves, many of whom show great shrewdness in their endeavors to escape from this land of bondage. A slave one day was seen passing on the high road from a border town in the interior of the state of Virginia to the Ohio River. The man had neither hat upon his head or coat upon his back. He was driving before him a very nice fat pig, and appeared to all who saw him to be a laborer employed on an adjoining farm. Quote, no negro is permitted to go at large in the slave states without a written pass from his or her master except on business in the neighborhood. Where do you live, my boy? asked a white man of the slave, as he passed a white house with green blinds. "'Just up de road, sir,' was the answer. "'That's a fine pig.' "'Yes, sir, massa like dis chode very much.' And the negro drove on, as if he was in great haste. In this way he and the pig travelled more than fifty miles before they reached the Ohio River. Once at the river they crossed over. The pig was sold, and nine days after the runaway slave passed over the Niagara River, and for the first time in his life breathed the air of freedom.' A few weeks later, and on the same road, two slaves were seen passing. One was on horseback, the other was walking before him with his arms tightly bound, and a long rope leading from the man on foot to the one on horseback. Oh, ho! that's a runaway rascal, I suppose, said a farmer, who met them on the road. Yes, sir, he been run away, and I got him fast. Massa will tan his jacket for him nicely when he gets him. "'You are a trustworthy fellow, I imagine,' continued the farmer. "'Oh, yes, sir, Massa puts a heap of confidence in dis nigger.' And the slaves travelled on. When the one on foot was fatigued, they would change positions, the other being tied and driven on foot. This they called ride and tie. After a journey of more than two hundred miles, they reached the Ohio River, turned the horse loose, told him to go home, and proceeded on their way to Canada. However, they were not to have it all their own way. There are men in the free states, and especially in the states adjacent to the slave states, who make their living by catching the runaway slave, and returning him for the reward that may be offered. As the two slaves above mentioned were travelling on towards the land of freedom, led by the North Star, they were set upon by four of these slave-catchers, and one of them unfortunately captured, the other escaped. The captured fugitive was put under the torture, and compelled to reveal the name of his owner and his place of residence. Filled with delight, the kidnappers started back with their victim. Overjoyed with the prospect of receiving a large reward, they gave themselves up on the third night to pleasure. They put up at an inn. The negro was chained to the bedpost, in the same room with his captors. At dead of night, when all was still, the slave arose from the floor upon which he had been lying, looked around, and saw that the white men were fast asleep. The brandy-punch had done its work. With palpitating heart and trembling limbs, he viewed his position. The door was fast, 
but the warm weather had compelled them to leave the window open. If he could but get his chains off, he might escape through the window to the piazza, and reach the ground by one of the posts that supported the piazza. The sleeper's clothes hung upon chairs by the bedside. The slave thought of the padlock key, examined the pockets, and found it. The chains were soon off, and the negro stealthily making his way to the window. He stopped and said to himself, "'These men are villains. They are enemies to all who, like me, are trying to be free. Then why not I teach them a lesson?' He then undressed himself, took the clothes of one of the men, dressed himself in them, and escaped through the window, and a moment more he was on the high road to Canada. Fifteen days later, and the writer of this, gave him a passage across Lake Erie, and saw him safe in Her Britannic Majesty's dominions. We have seen Clotel sold to Mr. French in Vicksburg, her hair cut short, and everything done to make her realize her position as a servant. Then we have seen her resold, because her owners feared she would die through grief. As yet, her new purchaser treated her with respectful gentleness, and sought to win her favor by flattery and presents, knowing that whatever he gave her he could take back again. But she dreaded every moment lest the scene should change, and trembled at the sound of every footfall. At every interview with her new master, Clotel stoutly maintained that she had left a husband in Virginia, and would never think of taking another. The gold watch and chain, and other glittering presents which he purchased for her, were all laid aside by the quadroon, as if they were of no value to her. In the same house with her was another servant, a man who had from time to time hired himself from his master. William was his name. He could feel for Clotel, for he, like her, had been separated from near and dear relatives, and often tried to console the poor woman. One day the quadroon observed to him that her hair was growing out again. "'Yes,' replied William, "'you look a good deal like a man with your short hair.' "'Oh,' rejoined she, "'I have often been told that I would make a better-looking man than a woman. If I had the money,' continued she, "'I would bid farewell to this place.' In a moment more she feared that she had said too much, and smilingly remarked, "'I'm always talking nonsense.' William was a tall, full-bodied negro, whose very countenance beamed with intelligence. Being a mechanic, he had by his own industry made more than what he paid his owner. This he laid aside with the hope that some day he might get enough to purchase his freedom. He had in his chest one hundred and fifty dollars. His was a heart that felt for others, and he had again and again wiped the tears from his eyes as he heard the story of Clotel as related by herself. If she can get free with a little money— why not give her what I have, thought he, and then he resolved to do it. An hour after, he came into the quadroon's room, and laid the money in her lap, and said, There, Miss Clotel, you said if you had the means you would leave this place. There is money enough to take you to England, where you will be free. You are much fairer than many of the white women of the South, and can easily pass for a free white lady. At first Clotel feared that it was a plan by which the negro wished to try her fidelity to her owner, but she was soon convinced by his earnest manner and the deep feeling with which he spoke that he was honest i will take the money only on one condition said she and that is that i effect your escape as well as my own how can that be done he inquired i will assume the disguise of a gentleman and you that of a servant and we will take passage on a steamboat and go to cincinnati and thence to canada 
Here William put in several objections to the plan. He feared detection, and he knew well that when a slave is once caught when attempting to escape, if returned is sure to be worse treated than before. However, Clotel satisfied him that the plan could be carried out if he would only play his part. The resolution was taken, the clothes for her disguise procured, and before night everything was in readiness for their departure. That night Mr. Cooper, their master, was to attend a party, and this was their opportunity. William went to the wharf to look out for a boat, and had scarcely reached the landing ere he heard the puffing of a steamer. He returned and reported the fact. Clotel had already packed her trunk, and had only to dress, and all was ready. In less than an hour they were on board the boat. Under the assumed name of Mr. Johnson, Clotel went to the clerk's office and took a private stateroom for herself, and paid her own and servant's fare. Besides being attired in a neat suit of black, she had a white silk handkerchief tied round her chin, as if she was an invalid. A pair of green glasses covered her eyes, and fearing that she would be talked to too much, and thus render her liable to be detected, she assumed to be very ill. On the other hand, William was playing his part well in the servants' hall. He was talking loudly of his master's wealth. Nothing appeared as good on the boat as in his master's fine mansion. "'I don't like these steamboats nohow,' said William. "'I hope when Massa goes on a journey again, he will take de carriage and de horses.' Mr. Johnson, for such was the name by which Clotel now went, remained in his room to avoid as far as possible conversation with others. After a passage of seven days, they arrived at Louisville, and put up at Goff's Hotel. Here they had to await the departure of another boat for the north. They were now in their most critical position. They were still in a slave state, and John C. Calhoun, a distinguished slave-owner, was a guest at this hotel. They feared also that trouble would attend their attempt to leave this place for the north, as all persons taking negroes with them have to give bail that such negroes are not runaway slaves. The law upon this point is very stringent. All steamboats and other public conveyances are liable to a fine for every slave that escapes by them, besides paying the full value for the slave. After a delay of four hours, Mr. Johnson and servant took passage on the steamer Rodolph for Pittsburgh. It is usual, before the departure of the boats, for an officer to examine every part of the vessel to see that no slave secretes himself on board. "'Where are you going?' asked the officer of William, as he was doing his duty on this occasion. "'I'm going with Massa,' was the quick reply. "'Who is your master?' "'Mr. Johnson, sir, a gentleman in the cabin. "'You must take him to the office, and satisfy the captain that all is right, or you can't go on this boat.' William informed his master what the officer had said. The boat was on the eve of going, and no time could be lost, yet they knew not what to do. At last they went to the office, and Mr. Johnson, addressing the captain, said, "'I am informed that my boy can't go with me unless I give security that he belongs to me.' "'Yes,' replied the captain, "'that is the law.' "'A very strange law indeed,' rejoined Mr. Johnson, "'that one can't take his property with him.' After a conversation of some minutes, and a plea on the part of Johnson that he did not wish to be delayed owing to his illness, they were permitted to take their passage without farther trouble, and the boat was soon on its way up the river. The fugitives had now passed the Rubicon, and the next place at which they would land would be in a free state. Clotel called William to her room, and said to him, "'We are now free. You can go on your way to Canada, and I shall go to Virginia in search of my daughter.' 
The announcement that she was going to risk her liberty in a slave state was unwelcome news to William. With all the eloquence he could command, he tried to persuade Clotel that she could not escape detection, and was only throwing her freedom away. But she had counted the cost, and made up her mind for the worst. In return for the money he had furnished, she had secured for him his liberty, and their engagement was at an end. After a quick passage, the fugitives arrived at Cincinnati, and there separated. William proceeded on his way to Canada, and Clotel again resumed her own apparel, and prepared to start in search of her child. As might have been expected, the escape of those two valuable slaves created no little sensation in Vicksburg. Advertisements and messages were sent in every direction in which the fugitives were thought to have gone. It was soon, however, known that they had left the town as master and servant, and many were the communications which appeared in the newspapers, in which the writers thought, or pretended, that they had seen the slaves in their disguise. One was to the effect that they had gone off in a chaise, one as master and the other as servant, but the most probable was an account given by a correspondent of one of the southern newspapers, who happened to be a passenger in the same steamer in which the slaves escaped, and which we here give. Quote, one bright starlit night in the month of December, last, I found myself in the cabin of the steamer Rodolphe, then lying in the port of Vicksburg, and bound to Louisville. I had gone early on board, in order to select a good berth, and having got tired of reading the papers, amused myself with watching the appearance of the passengers as they dropped in, one after another, and I, being a believer in physiognomy, formed my own opinion of their characters. The second bell rang, and as I yawningly returned my watch to my pocket, my attention was attracted by the appearance of a young man who entered the cabin supported by his servant, a strapping negro. The man was bundled up in a capacious overcoat, his face was bandaged with a white handkerchief, and its expression entirely hid by a pair of enormous spectacles. There was something so mysterious and unusual about the young man as he sat restless in the corner, that curiosity led me to observe him more closely. He appeared anxious to avoid notice, and before the steamer had fairly left the wharf, requested in a low, womanly voice to be shown his berth, as he was an invalid and must retire early. His name he gave as Mr. Johnson. His servant was called, and he was put quietly to bed. I paced the deck until Tyhee light grew dim in the distance, and then went to my berth. I awoke in the morning with the sun shining in my face. We were then just passing St. Helena. It was a mild, beautiful morning, and most of the passengers were on deck, enjoying the freshness of the air and stimulating their appetites for breakfast. Mr. Johnson soon made his appearance, arrayed as on the night before, and took his seat quietly upon the guard of the boat. From the better opportunity afforded by daylight, I found that he was a slight build, apparently handsome young man, with black hair and eyes, and of a darkness of complexion that betokened Spanish extraction. Any notice from others seemed painful to him, so, to satisfy my curiosity, I questioned his servant, who was standing near, and gained the following information. His master was an invalid, he had suffered for a long time under a complication of diseases that had baffled the skill of the best physicians in Mississippi. He was now suffering principally with the rheumatism, and he was scarcely able to walk or help himself in any way. He came from Vicksburg, and was now on his way to Philadelphia, at which place resided his uncle, a celebrated physician, and through whose means he hoped to be restored to perfect health. 
This information, communicated in a bold, off-hand manner, enlisted my sympathies for the sufferer, although it occurred to me that he walked rather too gingerly for a person afflicted with so many ailments. After thanking Clotel for the great service she had done him in bringing him out of slavery, William bade her farewell. The prejudice that exists in the free states against colored persons on account of their color is attributable solely to the influence of slavery, and is but another form of slavery itself. And even the slave who escapes from the southern plantations is surprised when he reaches the north at the amount and withering influence of this prejudice. William applied at the railway station for a ticket for the train going to Sandusky, and was told that if he went by that train he would have to ride in the luggage van. Why? asked the astonished negro. We don't send a Jim Crow carriage but once a day, and that went this morning. The Jim Crow carriage is the one in which the blacks have to ride. Slavery is a school in which its victims learn much shrewdness, and William had been an apt scholar. Without asking any more questions, the negro took his seat in one of the first-class carriages. He was soon seen and ordered out. Afraid to remain in the town longer, he resolved to go by that train, and consequently seated himself on a goods-box in the luggage-van. The train started at its proper time, and all went on well. Just before arriving at the end of the journey, the conductor called on William for his ticket. "'I have none,' was the reply. "'Well, then, you can pay your fare to me,' said the officer. "'How much is it?' asked the black man. Two dollars.' "'What do you charge those in the passenger-carriage?' Two dollars.' "'And do you charge me the same as you do those who ride in the best carriages?' asked the negro. "'Yes,' was the answer. "'I shan't pay it,' returned the man. "'You black scamp! Do you think you can ride on this road without paying your fare?' "'No, I don't want to ride for nothing. I only want to pay what's right.' "'Well, launch out two dollars, and that's right.' "'No, I shan't. I will pay what I ought, and won't pay any more.' "'Come, come, nigger. You're fair and be done with it,' said the conductor, in a manner that is never used, except by Americans, to blacks. "'I won't pay you two dollars, and that enough,' said William. "'Well, as you have come all the way in the luggage-van, pay me a dollar and a half, and you may go. I shan't do any such thing.' "'Don't you mean to pay for riding?' "'Yes, but I won't pay a dollar and a half for riding up here in the freight-van. If you had let me come in the carriage where others ride, I would have paid you two dollars.' "'Where were you raised? You seem to think yourself as good as white folks.' "'I want nothing more than my rights.' "'Well, give me a dollar, and I will let you off.' "'No, sir, I shan't do it.' "'What do you mean to do, then? Don't you wish to pay anything?' "'Yes, sir, I want to pay you the full price.' "'What do you mean by full price?' "'What do you charge per hundredweight for goods?' inquired the negro, with a degree of gravity that would have astonished Diogenes himself." "'A quarter of a dollar per hundred, answered the conductor. "'I weigh just one hundred and fifty pounds,' returned William, "'and will pay you three-eighths of a dollar. "'Do you expect that you will pay only thirty-seven cents for your ride? "'This, sir, is your own price. "'I came in a luggage-van, and I'll pay for luggage.' "'After a vain effort to get the negro to pay more, "'the conductor took the thirty-seven cents, "'and noted in his cash-book, Received for one hundred and fifty pounds of luggage, thirty-seven cents. This, reader, is no fiction. It actually occurred in the railway above described. Thomas Corwin, a member of the American Congress, is one of the blackest white men in the United States. He was once on his way to Congress, and took passage in one of the Ohio River steamers. 
As he came just at the dinner hour, he immediately went into the dining saloon and took his seat at the table. A gentleman with his whole party of five ladies at once left the table. "'Where is the captain?' cried the man in an angry tone. The captain soon appeared, and it was some time before he could satisfy the old gent that Governor Corwin was not a nigger. The newspapers often have notices of mistakes made by innkeepers and others who undertake to accommodate the public, one of which we give below. On the sixth instance, the Honourable Daniel Webster and family entered Edgartown, on a visit for health and recreation. Arriving at the hotel, without alighting from the coach, the landlord was sent for to see if suitable accommodation could be had. That dignitary appearing and surveying Mr. Webster, while the Honourable Senator addressed him, seemed woefully to mistake the dark features of the traveller as he sat back in the corner of the carriage, and to suppose him a coloured man, particularly as there were two coloured servants of Mr. W. outside. So he promptly declared that there was no room for him and his family, and he could not be accommodated there, at the same time suggesting that he might perhaps find accommodation at some of the huts up back, to which he pointed. So deeply did the prejudice of looks possess him, that he appeared not to notice that the stranger introduced himself to him as Daniel Webster, or to be so ignorant as not to have heard of such a personage, and turning away, he expressed to the driver his astonishment that he should bring black people there for him to take in. It was not till he had been repeatedly assured and made to understand that the said Daniel Webster was a real live senator of the United States, that he perceived his awkward mistake and the distinguished honour which he and his house were so near missing. In most of the free states the coloured people are disenfranchised on account of their colour. The following scene, which we take from a newspaper in the state of Ohio, will give some idea of the extent to which this prejudice is carried. Quote, the whole of Thursday last was occupied by the Court of Common Pleas for this county in trying to find out whether one Thomas West was of the voting colour, as some had very constitutional doubts as to whether his colour was orthodox, and whether his hair was of the official crisp. Was it not a dignified business? Four profound judges, four acute lawyers, twelve grave jurors, and I don't know how many venerable witnesses, making in all about thirty men, perhaps, all engaged in the profound, laborious, and illustrious business of finding out whether a man who pays tax, works on the road, and is an industrious farmer, has been born according to the Republican Christian Constitution of Ohio, so that he can vote. And they wisely, gravely, and judgmatically decided that he should not vote. What wisdom, what research it must have required to evolve this truth. It was left for the Court of Common Pleas for Columbian County, Ohio, in the United States of North America, to find out what Solomon never dreamed of. The courts of all civilized, heathen, or Jewish countries never contemplated. Lest the wisdom of our courts should be circumvented by some such men as might be named, who are so near being born constitutionally that they might be taken for white by sight, I would suggest that our court be invested with smelling powers, and that if a man don't exhale the constitutional smell, he shall not vote. This would be an additional security to our liberties." Unquote. William found, after all, that liberty in the so-called free states was more a name than a reality, that prejudice followed the colored man into every place that he might enter. 
The temples erected for the worship of the living God are no exception. The finest Baptist church in the city of Boston has the following paragraph in the deed that conveys its seats to pew-holders. And it is a further condition of these presents, that if the owner or owners of said pew shall determine hereafter to sell the same, it shall first be offered, in writing, to the standing committee of said society for the time being, at such price as might otherwise be obtained for it, and the said committee shall have the right, for ten days after such offer, to purchase said pew for said society at that price, first deducting therefrom all taxes and assessments on said pew, then remaining unpaid. And, if the said committee shall not complete such purchase within said ten days, then the pew may be sold by the owner, or owners thereof, after payment of all such arrears, to any one respectable white person, but upon the same conditions as are contained in this instrument, and immediate notice of such sale shall be given in writing, by the vendor, to the treasurer of said society." Unquote. Such are the conditions upon which the Rose Street Baptist Church, Boston, disposes of its seats. The writer of this is able to put that whole congregation, minister and all, to flight by merely putting his colored face in that church. We once visited a church in New York that had a place set apart for the sons of Ham. It was a dark, dismal-looking place in one corner of the gallery, grated in front like a hen-coop, with a black border around it. It had two doors. Over one was B.M., black men. Over the other, B.W., black women. End of chapter 19